listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks, everyone, for joining us again for episode 306. What's up, Paige? Hi. I heard you had a trip today to an oil museum. Yeah, it was under construction, though, so it was kind of a waste of a trip. So we'll have to go back, because like the most important part that I was trying to show Audrey, since she's new to the industry, was on the second floor and then outside on the upper deck. So I was a little bummed out, but I mean... It happens. Yeah. Plus, it's almost like a real work site, right? Because there's construction going on. <laughs> Guess where we're going to be Wednesday, June 28th? In Calgary. In Calgary. If you'd like to come here, Paige and I record live an episode of this show. The link is in the show notes. There's a few dollars that we're – actually, we're not charged. There's a few dollars being charged. This is our first industry mixer in Calgary, sponsored by Emerson. Big shout-out to that crew over there for doing really great stuff. And earlier, I told you that the money that we would raise would be donated to a charity for – retired police dogs. And unfortunately, Paige, they never returned our emails, right? So now the charity is actually going to be for the children that survive police officer deaths. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So the money's still going for a great cause, just not to doggos, but to little kids. If you're in the Alberta area, you have to go to this. There's a need in Alberta and in in Canadian oil and gas industry for people to come in and actually give those workers a pep talk. They've been beaten down, and they their politics and their country is a little bit different here. And not only we come have a good time, raise money for charity, but I'm going to talk about how you should be proud to be a, a Canadian oil and gas worker and the future is bright. So come check it out. I think it's 20 bucks. The link's in the show note. If you come, make sure you come find me and introduce yourself. That should be fun and overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> you want to read the review, which is sort of not a review? Yeah, sure. It's from Dayton Page. Want to throw an opportunity your way, but don't want to add work to you like you mentioned on the pod. But if for some reason you ever come across engineers looking for experience in fracked, I'd be more than happy to have them sent my way. We hired field engineers and stick them on a crew learning the hard way. So it's not for the fan of heart, but just wanted to offer that out to you in case you it could help anyone get some experience. Based in Oklahoma, and they could commute from wherever since it's like a two-week hitch for work. Interns and full-time welcome. I'll read any resume. All right, everybody. So everybody that's been hitting me up wanting to learn how to get experience in the field, here it is right in your face. So reach out to Dayton Page. We'll put a link to his LinkedIn profile. If you want to get some field experience, it's being offered to you. Internship right out of college, trying to learn a new trade, trying to get an oil and gas industry. Here's your opportunity. And Dayton, bottom of my heart, thank you. This was awesome. Right on. All right. Well, it's First Friday Q&A, and uh, as always, we're starting off with questions from Ludwig Hoff. Question is, California wishes to get everything all electric. I have some questions. What would it take to adjust the electricity grid, and who would pay for the stuff? Also, where is the place for chargers? Is it technical possible? I don't know what that means. But is it technically possible? Technically, okay. 
So, yes, it's technically possible. Let me tell you what California's plans are, and then, audience, you can figure out if it's something that you think makes sense or not. But it is technically possible. Number one, you asked about chargers. They would need to increase their chargers by about 80%. They need a minimum of 1.2 million chargers in the state to if they have all-electric vehicles. So you have to have that investment. The bigger thing is the ability to generate enough electricity and then also have the infrastructure to get that extra electricity to all of these chargers. And so what California's plan is a modest increase in their in- infrastructure. So basically think of all the wires you see hanging from poles. They're going to put some money into that. They're also going to increase their solar and wind. So they're going to put some money in that. What they aren't talking about is they're also going to increase their natural gas-fired power, power uh, plant capacity because something has to provide electricity when there's no sun and there's no wind. Now, here's the part where it gets squirrely. And in some states, you may have already experienced this, this, some of this going on in Texas right now. What happens is certain electrical providers, if you agree to let them put thermostats in your house and control the thermostats, you get a break on your bill. The reason they do that is when there's peak demand. So here in Texas, probably from, say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon to probably 5 or 6 p.m. is peak demand because it's so hot. The electricity companies then raise your air-conditioned thermostat without your control, so not as much electricity is being used. That's the reason they provide those thermostats, which means it's hot in your house for part of the day. That's the deal that you made with the devil. California wants to do that with the entire state. So they plan to have all-electric vehicles. They know they can't build enough electrical generation capacity to provide all electric vehicles, although they can put in enough charging station Ludwig. And so what they're going to do is when one part of the state doesn't need electricity, they're going to pull electricity out of those electric vehicles, put it on the grid, and bring it to parts of the state that need the electricity, and then vice versa, which means you may get in your electric vehicle, and it may be only 20% charge, right, even though you had it plugged That's in. That's wild. Night. They're going to do the same thing with your thermostats and with anything else that uses electricity. They want to have algorithms controlling the flow of electricity, looking at all these electric vehicles as batteries that the state of California doesn't have to buy or maintain. You're basically buying the batteries for them, and then they're going to use your batteries in your car for a distributed electrical system. That's how they plan on getting to all electric vehicles. So if that's something you're okay with, then great, because it is possible to do it. It also adds a layer of redundancy. I would not be okay with that because if no. I spend the money on an electric vehicle and I charge it on, I, I expect it to be fully charged and I get up the morning so I can go do whatever I well, want to do. Well, aren't you paying for, for the electricity yes, to charge it? Yes, you're paying for electricity. now. And they, aren't you paying even more because you're rich? Yes. <laughs> what in the world? Yeah, that's the answer to your question. So technically it's possible. What do I think is going to happen? So California has a mandate by 2035, no more internal combustion engines will be, cars will be sold. I think somebody's going to end up overturning that because that is impossible. And if for some reason they stick to that, what's going to happen is electric vehicles are expensive. Quite frankly, they're only really for very wealthy people today in 2023. A lot of the state of California is not wealthy. So what's going to happen is they're going to keep their internal combustion engine vehicles for a very long time. Now, as you wear and tear an internal combustion engine and it gets older, it gets less efficient and releases more pollutants. Uh-huh. So I think what's going to happen is California's going to end up with more electric vehicles than they have now, for sure, predominantly bought by the wealthy. I think there will be a lot of pushback when the wealthy get up and their electric vehicles aren't fully charged. And then everybody else will be driving old internal combustion engines that are polluting more than a modern new combustion engine because they can't get a new car. That's what I think is going to actually happen. So we'll see. So, wait, so you said something about them extending the natural gas plant? 
Yeah, so they're building more natural gas fired power plants, but you don't hear that. But but what about? But people can't have freaking stoves. Well, so New York or lawnmowers. Well, no, New York is the one that's (laughs) banning. All natural gas hookups. California <sighs> tried it and it got overturned. Oh, okay. Remember, it's non-competitive. In the U.S., you can't – a state cannot tell its citizens it only can use one fuel source that's considered a monopoly. Ah, uh, okay. And I expect, I expect somebody to take the government of New York to the court and, same and thing. do the same thing. Right, okay. Yeah, but that's where it's going. Luthwick, if no matter what, it's going to be fun to talk about. So let's <laughs> see where it goes. Okie doke. Next question comes from Bridget Williams, Marketing Director at TriCan. Hey guys, absolutely love your show and I'm a huge fan. I saw that you launched a DE&I podcast recently, although I still don't think the episodes have been released yet. What was the impetus behind this and what can we expect from the podcast? Don't get me wrong, DE&I is an extremely important subject, but I would love to think too many companies and organizations approach it the wrong way. Just would love to hear the background and story and your thoughts. Please keep up the amazing work and keep it turning to the right. Thanks, Bridget, for uh, for the question. And I think by now those episodes have been released. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure That's they have. Kim Ali. She is doing an amazing job on that podcast. You know, very transparently, Bridget, I agree with you. DE&I has in some ways become a buzzword in the oil and gas industry. It has become a box checking exercise for some companies. And we just think that's wrong. So we're on this podcast, we're going to talk about the hard stuff that nobody else wants to talk about, such as are the older white men that work in this industry brought to the DNI table, right? Because if you don't invite them to the table, if they don't feel welcome there, then you're not diverse. Right. This isn't some PR stunt by some company. We're getting deep into this. You know, this industry has always had a great reputation of taking care of its workers, and I mean all workers. And so we want to make sure we're telling the true stories of how this industry is taking care of its workers and its employees and the local communities that we operate in, regardless of sexual preference, nationality, age, race, any of that. And, and we're going to have the hard conversations that nobody else there out there is having. We're also going to do in the fall a DE&I event here in Houston, once again, based upon having to deal with the hard subjects. Such as, you know, maybe if you look at your board, board of directors, and you don't have enough, say, females on that board, what's the problem? A lot of companies will just go hire some females so they're a checkbox on the board. That's not yeah. the right way to do it. Maybe you're recruiting from the wrong universities. Maybe the your recruiters that are helping to, or maybe the people that are helping you find board members only look in certain directions, right? I have my own biases, I discovered, and it's around engineering because I work in this freaking industry. (laughs) And in my head, I realized this recently, in my head, without being super aware of it, but I thought that engineers from universities like A&M are better than other engineers. That's not true at all. It's just stuck in my head because I work in the oil and gas industry. You could be an electrical engineer from some college nobody's ever heard of and be a damn good electrical engineer. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of stuff we're going to talk about, Bridget. So stay tuned. That shows a blast. Kim does a fantastic job, and we're not shying away from any of the hard conversations. All right. Speaking of engineering, the next one's from Craig, engineering student. Is studying petroleum engineering still a good idea? Can you say some more about the outlook for that career and how I best position and prepare myself to be successful in this field? Thank you. There's getting ready to be such a global shortage of petroleum engineers that, Craig, you can have all C's and you're probably going to get a $150,000 job out of college. I'm not saying you should have all C's. Don't tell your parents I said that. So the outlook is huge. Now, remember this about petroleum engineering. When the oil and gas industry is doing great, petroleum engineers are the first to be hired. They're the top paid right out of college. 
when the oil and gas industry, the upstream side of the industry slows down or there's a downturn, they're usually one of the groups that are first to be let go because there's no work for you. So my advice to you, and I've said this before, is learn something else that complements your petroleum engineering that also has other important needs in the oil and gas industry. The one I always go back to is big data analytics. Mm-hmm. Learn some data science, which is part of what you're doing anyway. Get really good at it. Maybe even learn to write a little bit of code. And this way, you're a petroleum engineer with a big data science background, which puts you ahead of other petroleum engineering students. And also, if something next downturn we have, and this industry is cyclic, especially upstream, there will be another downturn. Right. You can then position yourself that you're still valuable to the company you work at to other companies. The other thing is once you get some real world experience, so once you get, you know, real petroleum engineering experience, you know, with an operator, look at some of the big tech companies. They're always hiring domain expertise. They understand the technology, but they don't understand reservoirs, right? And so that's another place once you get some experience that you could go work for, you know, Microsoft, IBM, Google, Amazon, whoever, and then be protected by the cycles. But you're in a great place. If you're graduating petroleum engineering in the next 10 years, you're in a great place. Wow. Next one is from Milos. Hi, my name is Milos, and I am a first-year MBA student at Duke University with finance experience in banking and oil and gas in Europe. And I am looking for a summer internship in investing banking, ideally natural resources, oil and gas group, or oil and gas industry. By not knowing how the system works, I made a mistake and started my recruiting process late and missed some great opportunities. So now I'm looking for an internship opportunity in the off cycle. Currently, I'm exploring all possible options as an international student and would much appreciate if you have any idea, information, or advice how to approach the situation and connect with a community industry so I can make the first step in the industry of my highest interest. Thanks. So Milo, just keep listening to us and you'll hear me tell all the intern looking students, you need to be looking now. You are right. You missed it big time. However, luckily enough for you, I probably could help you out. So three companies off the top of my head, hire interns off cycle. And all three companies do it for the same reason in that the whole world hires in one cycle. These three companies hire in off cycle. So they have choice of top talent that other companies don't have, right? So go to Chevron, Chevron Corporation, go to Oil States, and then actually go to Oxy. Go look at Oxy, Chevron, and Oil States. All three of them hire interns in off cycle. You're going to have to go to their career page. Just search for internships. Any internship that you see pop up for, if you're remotely qualified for it, apply. Because the truth is, what they're going to have you being doing in the very beginning is not going to be very complex or deep. So if you see an earth scientist internship and you barely qualify for it, apply for that. If you see a drilling and completions internship, apply for that. I don't care. What did he say his degrees in is finance? Yeah. The MBA student. MBA. Yeah. So apply for any and all of the internships that those three companies have. And then check back in with us, Myla, in, in, I don't know, a month or two. I suspect you'll get a job with one of them. Let us know how it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Next one is from HK Landry. I believe this is what Paige said. She said, who names this stuff? UCO, use cooking oil. UCO is the most favorable moniker for renewable tax incentives and mandates. Before renewables, the UCO was mixed all together with rendered grease and called yellow grease or more recently mixed fats and oils. After the mad cow disease hit a few decades back, the yellow grease was curtailed for feed fat use for animals. There was, however, a market in Central America, megatons of this cheap stuff exported there. 
After the renewable regime mandates hit, there was no cheap stuff left and no exports. Anywho, what I point to here is the irony that this stuff is now so valuable that it is found in export market once again. Paige, do you know where the export market is for this stuff, this UCO? Well, it's made in biodiesel. Here are some facts that came across. Uh, the top three importers of used cooking oil are the Netherlands with 5,460 shipments, followed by Croatia with 4,062, and the United States at the third spot with 3,384. The Top exporters of vegetable oil are Germany with 66,028 shipments, followed by the Netherlands with 52.5, and France at third spot with just about 5,300. In 2023 so far, the U.S. has imported about 530,000 barrels of used cooking oil to make renewable diesel. Who would have ever thought that would have become a commodity? I remember that when there were companies... And the money we made is disposing of that stuff, right? Right. So McDonald's would pay companies to go pick up the used cooking oil when they changed out the fryers. Now there's a market for it. I actually think that's a wonderful system to be able to take used cooking oil and turn it into fuels. A couple little caveats. The biodiesel that's made from cooking oils does not have as much power be to use as diesel made from petroleum. So the trucker has to run more of it to get the same power, but I still think it's great. Not only that, it crystallizes in the winter, so it, they have to add more stuff into it to keep it from right. doing that. Now, you also can make what's called sustainable aviation fuel, which is retarded. Let's just call it aviation fuel made from French fry oil, right? Mm -hmm. That has the same number of BTUs as normal aviation fuel, so that's a good place for it as well. So, people, if you're ever wandering somewhere in the world and a diesel truck passes you and it smells like French fries. <laughs> Last fact, now the Department of Energy says that there are five plants in the U.S. making renewable diesel. Yeah, ConocoPhillips in California was, remember the refinery? They were getting ready to shut down. Oh, yeah. Because they weren't making any money because the state wouldn't allow them to build pipeline or rail. Mm -hmm. And then somebody really smart over there said, hey, what if we turn this to biodiesel in the state of California? She said, we love you. And a lot of the pipelines <laughs> and rails. <laughs> of course. Of course. All right. So the next one is from John Ballard, Portfolio Manager at Worley. I heard a rumor that you will be doing one of your industry mixers in Calgary sometime soon. Please tell me that's true. And if it's true, what are the details? Been a big fan of you both of yours in this podcast for years. Also love Paige's Industry Leaders Show. Thanks. Suggestion for behind the curtain segment. Pick a controversial subject in the industry and you and Paige just freestyle it with no preparation. Like, should oil and gas employees be allowed to have a legal firearm on site or drug testing for marijuana be eliminated? Just a thought. That's not a bad idea. It's actually really not a bad idea. So I tell you what, John, we don't do behind the curtain for First Friday Q&A. For our next one, we'll try it. And yeah. if, it's, if it booms, we'll give you full credit. And if it bombs, we'll say it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I guess this is a little bit old. But, John, yeah, we are doing a first industry mixer in Calgary. Please, please, please invite you and all your coworkers there. The more people we have show up to our industry mixer in Calgary, the more likely it is we'll do it again and again right. and again. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So please, anybody and everybody, and if you can help me, I mean, this is Mark LaCour personally asking our listeners, can you help spread the word in the show notes? So whatever device you're listening to on the, this podcast on, go to the show notes. You will see a link for our Calgary industry mixer. If you can share that with your network on LinkedIn, with your coworkers, whatever, I personally I, thank you. We need more people to attend so we can do this over and over again and help the oil and gas workers and the culture in Canada, and at the same time, give back to a good charity. Yeah. Yeah. 
Alrighty. Emma Johnson, Compliance and Standards Manager at Champion, has a question. I look forward to listening to every week, and sometimes I'll even listen a second or third time. Drives my husband crazy. <laughs> anyway, two questions. So the first one is, Paige, what is the good neighbor rule 2023 and how it will affect energy prices in the United States? Well, on March 15th, 2023, the EPA released the final good neighbor plan rule to require upwind states to reduce emissions of the ozone precursor nitrogen oxide from electric generating units and certain stationary industrial sources in accordance with the EPA's 2015 ozone national ambient air quality standards. So why is this a rule? The Clean Air Act requires the EPA to review and update the ozone national ambient air quality standards every five years. States are responsible for developing and implementing state information plans to ensure each attains the applicable ozone quality standard. So based off of what I found, it will drive up electricity prices and some cases cause premature closures of baseload power plants during a time when households are already facing high inflation and increasing energy costs in over 20 states. I think it's 22. The rule is in the Federal Register cited as 88FR36654 and will go into effect August 4th. Of this year? Yes. We don't need any more baseload power stations to close. I know. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, baseload is like the supply of water to your house. It is the electricity that is always available anytime you turn the faucet on, and that's what keeps basically the lights on. Depending on where you live at certain times during the day and year, you need more than the baseload, right? You need extra, and that can be supplied very easily by wind and solar, geothermal, tidal but the baseload is what keeps everybody safe and is always there. And one of the problems we're having in the U.S. is 100% of our baseload power is provided by fossil fuels and nuclear. And we're not allowed – and nuclear has become cost prohibitive because of politics. So we're not building any new nuclear plants. And because of public perception, we're shutting down coal and natural gas plants, saying that we can replace them with wind and solar. Mm -hmm. And from a baseload point of view, that's not true. A baseload plant runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wind and solar, no hate people, this is legit. Like, this is just reality. Wind and solar only work partial times. Right. right. And so you can't get baseload from wind and solar. Now, I didn't realize that nitrous oxide was also called laughing gas. Ask me how I'll know that later. <laughs> I didn't realize nitrous oxide was a precursor for ozone. And ozone is something that is weird because we need it in our upper atmosphere to perfect, mm -hmm. protect us from ultraviolet rays, but we don't want it too close to the ground because it's harmful. So I see both sides of this. Let's hope that if they have to shut down maybe old cold fire power plants because of this rule that somebody has enough sense to stand up a natural gas fire power plant and put it in its place. Yeah. All right. Her second question is, Mark, your annual predictions are amazingly accurate. How do you do it? And have you ever thought about offering it as a service so that other companies could purchase access to it? You know, you're, who is this? Is I feel Ella? like we've Ella, you've been we've, asked that we've before. Had several people ask me that. So first thing, thank you. I don't have a crystal ball. The accuracy is really good some years and really bad other years. How do I do it? I'm just in the industry. And if you think about what I do, Emma, I'm literally talking to people that work in this industry every single day of the week. And what you may not know is I have another company called Modal Point, 
which helps companies sell their products or services to the oil and gas industry. And that company is a market research company, and I am a trained market researcher, among other things. And so when I do market research to see where another company's product or service fits in oil and gas and who would buy it and why, I naturally uncover trends. So you stick those trends that we uncover with our market research together with all the people that we talk to that work in the industry. And after a while, you can kind of guess with whatever actions that are going on today in June of 2023, how that's going to affect 2024. And then I've just gotten a little bit better at it, you know, each year because I do it like anything else. So no crystal ball, no secret, no sauce, no voodoo, just experience. Well, that gree gree. <laughs> None of our audience have any idea what we just said, except for our listeners. Of Louisiana. Exactly. <laughs> and you have to look it up on it because we're not going to tell you. Exactly. She also says, congratulations on your 300th episode. Please keep up your amazing work. We will. Okay. Matt Garcia, CRO at TAM International. Mark and Paige, I'm a huge fan. Fan to the point that the podcast is added to our new hire packets for educational and training purposes. Oh, that's no weight on our shoulders. Oh, no, no pressure. Mark, I remember a while back that somebody was shocked that a salesperson could know as much as you know about this industry. And I've also heard you on the sales and marketing podcast talk about how a good salesperson is a problem solver for their clients. Can you elaborate a little more on why domain expertise and strategic problem solving is so important for people with a sales or BD role. And Paige, I love how you keep Mark in line. Sounds like he needs it once in a while. Hey, Matt. <laughs> Not sure what that means. I don't know, but it's it's kind of cool coming from a guy. Elaborate a little bit on why domain expertise and strategic problem solving is important for people with a BD or sales roles. The world is complex. And no matter what you're selling, even if you're selling something that's simple, that is a commodity like a paperclip. You need to be a resource to your clients. And the only way you can be a resource to your clients is you have to get out of the old way of selling, which is where you knew about your product or service, and you need to understand business. You need to be able to read a P&L and a balance sheet. You need to understand things like budget, budget cycles. You need to understand things like operational efficiency, health, safety, environmental metrics, a regulatory And you need to understand all of that to the point that you know your client's business at minimum, at least as good as they do, and if not more than they do. Then you need to understand how your product or service can help them. And you need to be the type of salesperson or business development person that has a certain ethical standard that if you can't help your client, you tell them that, right? You don't need to be trying to make people buy stuff they don't need. That's the old way of doing stuff. That's what gives salespeople a bad reputation, the whole used car thing, trying to shove something down somebody's throat. However, if you're the type of person that can go to somebody like Exxon and go, look, your stock was devalued about six months last year because you had a public perception issue in the Northeast of the U.S., and I can help you fix that in a way that is transparent and real, Exxon's going to value not as a salesperson, but as a part of their team. And so that's why I think it's so important for salespeople to be problem solvers and be domain experts used to be that salespeople were educators, right? That's how I got my start. That was before the internet. So what you did as a good salesperson is I would educate my clients on all the options and then they could pick and choose. And in today's world, your client can go online and learn everything about you and your competitors in 15 minutes. So you don't need to educate anymore. You need to be a problem solver. And if you really want to be seen as a thought leader and a core component of your client's team, find problems that they don't know they have right? Now you're being super valuable to them. That's why I think it's important that you know what you're doing and that 
you understand problem solving and that you're not trying to make people buy stuff they don't need. Nobody likes that approach. It, unfortunately, it works just enough that people keep doing it, but it's aggravating and it's not valuable. Like I said, even if you sell a commodity like a paperclip or a pipe or whatever, you've sold more pipe or more paperclips than anybody else. And you probably can help your clients in ways you probably have not thought of. So like for the paperclips, right? It's needed in the office. They're a commodity. They're bought on price. But what if you went to your client and said, look, I know that if you run out of paper clips, you can't get, I don't know, work orders out on time. And if you can't get work orders out on time, you start losing money and you start affecting day sales outstanding. Instead of you just order paper clips from me, what if I could put a system in place where I can tell when you start getting low and I automatically order just enough and it shows up so your day sales outstanding never gets extended? Nobody would ever expect a paperclip salesman to have that conversation, but I promise you, if you're a paperclip salesman and you have that conversation with the chief financial officer, you got, you just close the deal. Yeah. I hope somebody that that works with paperclips <laughs> benefits from that. <laughs> Okie dokie. Next is Elizabeth Berkeley. Not that one, apparently. Uh, <laughs> she actually put that in yeah, parentheses. <laughs> That's an uh, actress, right? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Project Accountant 2 at TransOcean. This is my favorite podcast, and I actually saw both of y'all just for a little bit at OTC. What did you think of the conference, and do you still believe that the large oil and gas conferences are in a decline? And if so... What could turn that around? Also, Paige, I'm not sure whatever happened to your beauty blog, but me and a few of my friends are still interested in learning from you. You always seem so perfectly put together. And that red lipstick, is that your signature look? If not, it should be. It is. (laughs) Red is my favorite color. The beauty blog thing. I just keep forgetting to do it. I actually, every time I put on my makeup, I go, I should be recording this. (laughs) But I don't. So the intent is still there. We're just not yeah. sure if it's going to ever happen. Paige is busy, y'all. Yeah. And to add another piece to the mix is there's just a lot of hours left in the day. Yeah. But cool that people still want to see it. I still think the big conference on decline. Yeah. Let me tell you how I know that, Elizabeth Berkeley, but not that one. <laughs> For the first time ever, when we went to OTC, which is the largest offshore technology conference in the world, we had to buy Wi-Fi. And they want us to pay $75 a day per device for Wi-Fi. It's always been free before. And they intentionally jammed your ability to use your phone as a hotspot. And the reason I know that is when I was in the Marine Corps, I was a radio operator. I understand RF. I understand radios. I understand how that connection works. The fact that they did that, that they jammed people's ability to use their phone as a hotspot, and they wanted you to pay the exorbitant price of $75 a day per device tells me they're trying to make money in ways that traditionally didn't. Traditionally, they made money by exhibitors. Traditionally, those exhibitors were very large companies like Exxon and Chevron and Mobile and Total. And now they're starting to lose that. What could turn that around? All of these big international conferences with maybe the exception of Sarah Week and Atapec. Those two are still very strong. But maybe the other big, large international oil gas conferences, they need to figure out a way to attract a younger audience. The workforce is changing the oldest millennials now in their 40s, right? Hey, 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 don't call me out. <laughs> I'm not calling you out. <laughs> oldest millennial in the room right now. <laughs> and so these conferences need to learn how to appeal to a younger workforce. And that's not with something silly. That's actually providing real value. To have somebody pay, you know, anywhere from two hundred to $12,000 for a ticket and have them dress up and go wait in line in the parking lot and then actually get into a conference, there has to be real valuable f- for the people that work in this industry. 
and looking at your you know deep sea submersibles and your trees and your plans for East Africa and picking up some swag, that's kind of cool, but it's not going to keep people's attention. You need to have real short, fun educational components to your booths. You need to bring exhibitors that are non-traditional that touch the oil and gas industry. And the only way they're going to do that is by incentivizing them some way, such as discounts. You know, how cool would it have been? I did not see Microsoft at OTC. Microsoft should have been there with all of their AI stuff they're doing, and, and they weren't there. Somebody should incentivize them. That would attract younger workers, or I shouldn't say younger, the average workers now in oil and gas. So I think the big conferences are in decline. We intentionally bring a podcast pavilion to the conferences that want to work with us for this exact reason. It's one of the ways to attract more of the younger workforce in oil and gas to the conference in a way that's fun and educational. So that's my two cents on that, Elizabeth. Thank you. And you know, Oh, yeah. And I just realized Elizabeth Berkeley played Jesse on Say by the Bell. Oh, yeah. oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this isn't. But not her. Not her. Okay. <laughs> she must get that a lot. Is why she automatically yeah. put not yeah. that one. No, it took me a second. I was like, man. Oh, yeah. Say by the Bell. Okay, so Craig's a student and wants to know what is the outlook for petroleum engineering or engineers looking five to 10 years ahead? What are the opportunities and how can you qualify yourself for them? Thank you. Craig, let me scroll back. Did you send two questions in, Craig? Are you double dipping? What's his email address? Add 633. Yeah, no, he sent two. I see it. All right, Craig. So I don't know why. I don't know if you maybe thought we skipped your first one. If we did, sorry. Or you just have it. It's almost the same question. What are the opportunities and how can you qualify yourself for them? It's going to be the same thing I answered your first one. Looking five, 10 years ahead, the future looks bright for petroleum engineers. I think you need to have something added to your education besides petroleum engineering. Like I told you earlier, I think any of the data sciences would, would be great. And how would you qualify, qualify yourself for the opportunities? You're going to have graduate competitors that also have data science additional education. I think if you really want to qualify yourself and make yourself stand out, you need some real-world work experience. So get an internship. Remember, it takes a year. Don't do like Milo did and wait until the last minute. Get some real work experience, even if that means you have to do it for free. It doesn't say... You should hook him up with the guy in Oklahoma. Oh, that's perfect. So, Craig, reach out. What's the guy's name in Oklahoma? We go back. Dayton. Craig, it's in the same show. Reach out to Dayton. Get your butt out into the oil field. Get some real field experience. It's going to be fun. You'll make some money. You'll understand how things work in the field, and that is going to put you ahead of every other petroleum engineer graduate out there. So reach out to Dayton and go and go, go do a gig with him. That's, I'm, that's gl- I'm glad I'm paying attention I'm to glad you show. are paying attention, yeah. <laughs> All right. Ooh, next one is from Rob. Latimer, question for First Friday Q&A. As heard on a Columbia Energy podcast, Secretary of USDOE, as it relates to the SPR, quote, very quick to draw barrel out, but very slow to put barrel back, given the way the SPR operates. Why would that be? What technically makes it slower? Oil movement in or out should be similar, right? Right. And what our secretary of Department of Energy does not understand. (laughs) So our strategic petroleum reserves are basically oil that's stored in salt domes. We just had Joe here. He could explain salt domes better than me. But salt domes are a natural geological formation of literally salt, the same stuff that you put on your French fries. And what happens is in the right circumstance, the inside of that dome gets hollowed out. So it's like a big underground 
pot with a lid. Actually, it's not even a lid. It's a big underground ball. Think of it that mm-hmm. way where the inside is hollow. And the outer layers are made of salt, and salt is imperial, right? So you can put oil in there, and it won't leak out. It stays in there forever. Listen to what I just said. So our strategic petroleum reserves is a whole bunch of oil stored underground in salt balls. <laughs> Somebody's going to make a joke out of this. No, I already have one in my head. I'll tell you later. Okay. So when you pump that oil out, guess what it has mixed in it? Salt. Salt is extremely corrosive to piping, pumps, motors. So every time that you pull oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve, you cause a whole flurry of maintenance needs that would have not happened if you wouldn't pulled out. This is one of the things about what our current administration did when they pulled oil out of the SPR and put it on the market to try to lower pump prices that nobody talks about. So there's basically three major salt domes in the U.S. that holds 100%. So each one will hold 33% of our strategic petroleum reserve. And that's done on purpose in case there's a war. There's not one single point of failure. Mm-hmm. Of those three salt domes, two of them are down right now for maintenance because of how much salt was put through the machinery by the strategic petroleum reserve releases that our current administration have done in the last year. Yeah. So Brian Mound in Texas, which is right in our backyard, and then Bayou Choctaw in Louisiana are both undergoing planned maintenance right now, right? It's basically, they're shut down. They can't put any oil in them till they do this maintenance and repair work because of what the damage that was done by all the oil that was released. So uh, uh. with that down, we're 66% of our capacity to recharge is gone and is offline. This is one of those things that everybody that's involved with the strategic drill reserve knew. It's something that's never it's talked about in public. And it's something that our current Secretary of Department of Energy doesn't understand. <laughs> so Clearly. Th- so that's why the statement is it's very quickly draw a barrel out but slow to put in. It's not slower to put in. We've caused maintenance that was not planned for. And so basically we have an outage of our strategic petroleum reserve. Or 66% of our capacity of our SPR is, is an unplanned outage right now. All that maintenance repair should be completed actually by the end of this year. The other problem is pricing. I can't remember what the price point was, but our current administration committed to the public that I think when oil hit $70 a barrel, that filled SPR back up. And we we're last time I looked, we were right below 70 And nobody's bought any oil from the government. Go ask them why, why they haven't bought any to, to fill it mm. back up. Because we still can fill up that one, right? So we still have 33% capacity that is online and working that we can refill. And nobody's written a check to do that yet. Trying really hard not to take Jordan's space and get into the politics. Of that. <laughs> Just trying to state the facts. Yep. Yep. Well, that's all the questions. Well, then it's time for this week in petroleum history. We need some sound effect for that. So <laughs> <laughs> this week in 1879, guess what? Discovered okay. the first oil well, producing oil well in New York. 1,177 feet, triangle well number one. At its peak of production, it was doing 37 barrels a day. June 1917, Phillips Petroleum Company was founded right after World War I. Right after World War I, there was a huge spike in oil. Oil reached a dollar per barrel. And so it made enough fiscal sense for Phillips Petroleum Company to be founded in Barksdale, Oklahoma. The brothers Frank and Lee Phillips put their money together and started Phillips Petroleum. What else happened? June 1928. The first oil well was drilled and went to production in New Mexico. This was, let's see, in the Hobbs oil field, so southwest corner of the state. They actually were doing cable drilling. Boy, don't get me started on how antiquity mm-hmm. that was. And they were at 1,100 feet, and they were producing a whopping 308 barrels per day. 
Then, last one, 1865, June 14th, the first daily oil region newspaper, Tyatsville Herald, was launched in Pennsylvania. So that is our This Week in Petroleum History. Speaking of stuff that's not history, if you want to advertise with us, just go to OGGN.com, hit pricing. We have a low price offering on our back catalog, and so far, all of the companies that signed up for it are killing it. They're actually getting a huge return on their investment with driving new sales, and they don't have to do anything. It's actually really cool. It's actually so cool that I think I underpriced it, Paige, because <laughs> when we put it on the website, I sold it three times in the first week that it was on the website. And so now I got to wait for all those contracts to expire so I can go up on the pricing. So I'm telling you all, if you all want to play around with that, you better go grab the, what am I charging? I think I'm charging $50 per thousand clicks. So $50 per CPM. Go grab it while it's still $50. So I think I'm going to double the price when these contracts run out. And then we still have an OGN conference going on in the fall. If you want to grab an exhibitor spot, the links for that's also in the show notes. Weekly rig count. Where are we? United States is down one at 695. Canada is up 39 at 136. Internationally, we're up 18,965. And speaking of Canada, obviously the ground is not frozen anymore. So they're actually able to up their rig count. The wildfires are still not completely out, but it looks like they're getting more and more of them contained. Good. So that is really good. Yeah, I've really kept my eye on the wildfires. It's amazing. It sounds like it was a good thing. It was not amazing, but when I saw the satellite images of the smoke, that actually was so bad that it infiltrated to the upper northeastern states to the point that California looked like a movie set, looked like Armageddon. It was no sunlight. The entire day was just- California. I'm sorry, not California. New York. New York. New yeah. York. yeah. I was like, wrong yeah. coast, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> same politics. Um, <laughs> different states, same politics. <laughs> but yeah, it was bad. So, you know, the other thing that I thought was very heartfelt- is I didn't realize how many, not just states in the U.S. that sent firefighting teams to help out, countries. Yeah. So there was four or five African countries, Australia. You know how long a plane flight that is for a firefighter to come from Australia? Australia yeah. yeah. And so I just always think it's cool that when something really bad happens, forget politics and money. I just like to see the world come together and help, which is what that was. So hopefully by the time we get up to Calgary, all those fires will either be totally out or, or totally contained. Speaking of stuff that is not contained, if you want to give us a question like Craig did twice, just go and to- And don't do that. <laughs> don't do that twice. We don't know why, but yeah, submit your question once and I promise we get to it. And by the way, people, if you submit a question, we don't use it. There's a reason we didn't use it. We don't miss them. It's either inappropriate or it doesn't fit the content of the show. So if, if you submit something, we don't use it. We got it. I promise you we got it. We just chose not to use it. And we can't use all the questions that we have come in. Anyway, go on the line. Either go to allgasthisweek.com or OGN.com. Both places you can submit a question. Remember, people, it's a way to educate our audiences. It's not to stump Paige and I. That's not hard to do for me. <laughs> You answered the used cooking oil question. If anybody can answer, that was a pretty tough one. Thank you. <laughs> then monthly oil and gas events newsletter. It's free. Go sign up for it. We never spam you. And then if you'd like any of our experts or myself to come bring something to your event, whether it's a live podcast, you want us to do a keynote, reach out to us. Happy to share the details. Our talent stack is getting crazy at OGG. And besides the doctors that we have, Besides the 30-year veteran of the Department of Energy, we're getting ready to pick up a former lieutenant governor of a state I'm in love with. So if you want any of those experts to come talk to your vent, let us know. Happy to do that. Ready to get out of here? Yeah, you've talked about french fries a lot, so now I'm hungry. <laughs> want french fries. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. 
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.